Hey everybody, welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the scriptures in Come Follow Me. We also dive into the history and cultures of the text. Thanks for taking the time to share and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, TalkingScripture.org. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we're going to be talking about Second uh, Nephi 6-10. through 10. Bryce, this is Jacob talking to the group. We've had the great divorce. The Nephites and Lamanites have split. And so now Jacob's going to give some great teaching here in this section of the Book of Mormon. So Bryce, why don't you start us off and give us big picture as to what's happening here? We're now shifting authors. So what we've been doing, other than Nephi's psalm, most of what we did last week was Lehi. So Lehi was kind of the main author that we studied, and now we're shifting to Jacob, and Jacob's going to pull in Isaiah, and then after Jacob's done, Nephi's going to quote a whole bunch of Isaiah, and then Nephi will conclude this book. So what do all those men have in common? Just as a reminder, so Jacob, Isaiah, Nephi, and Lehi, if you want to flip quickly to 2 Nephi chapter 11, verses 2 and 3, Nephi very quickly says, look, I'm going to quote Isaiah because he verily saw my Redeemer even as I have seen him and my brother Jacob saw him. And we also learn from 1 Nephi that Lehi saw him. So there are four eyewitnesses to the Savior who are trying to help us overcome the blindnesses that we have. So here's what Jacob's going to do. I remind you that in Lehi's dream, we saw the tree, the building, the river, the rod, the mist, and then Nephi got three historical settings. And so that kind of really sets Nephi up to say, here are my five audiences. So the first group he saw were the New Testament Jews. So that becomes a major audience. And their blindness was that they rejected the Messiah because he wasn't the Messiah they wanted. So now one major audience that Nephi, Jacob, Lehi, and Isaiah are going to address are the Jews of the New Testament and their blindness to reject Jesus because he's not the Messiah that they want. We're going to see that theme all throughout 2 Nephi. Then Nephi saw his own people, Nephites and Lamanites. He saw that Nephite blindness is that pride of, I don't need God. And Lamanite blindness is that pride of, I'm angry at God. I'm angry at Nephi because he stole the leadership, and I'm angry at God because he's not doing things in my life that I wanted him to do. And then the third story Nephi was told was the Gentiles. But this is where he begins to distinguish. There were righteous Gentiles, and there were wicked Gentiles. If you go back to 1 Nephi chapter 14, the angel says to Nephi, there's only two churches. There's the church of the Lamb of God and the church of the devil. And in the latter days, the church of the Lamb will be strong but small. The church of the devil will be strong and large. And the church of the Lamb is going to have to fight against the church of the devil until the Savior comes and claims them. So those are the five audiences that we're going to see in Second Nephi. Jews of the New Testament time, Nephites and Lamanites, righteous and wicked Gentiles. And Jacob's going to start off with those very audiences. Now, Jacob's not really going to focus on Nephites and Lamanites. So now, go to chapter 6, verse 4. I'm going to speak unto you concerning things which are and things which are to come. 
So which are, he's going to focus on the Jews. Here's what's happening in Jerusalem with the Jews. Here's what's going to happen over the next few years. And then he's going to jump into the future and talk about the righteous and wicked Gentiles. So he says, I'm going to use Isaiah. He's going to quote two verses of Isaiah in verses six and seven. And then I'm going to expound on them because it relates to all of this. And then beginning in verse 8, he says, let's talk about those who were at Jerusalem. Well, the Lord's shown me that they've been destroyed. So the Babylonians have come into Jerusalem and absolutely slaughtered the Jews and taken a handful of them back to Babylonia as captives. Jacob says, and we've seen this in many scriptures before, verse 9, that they will return. The Jews will return from Babylonia and someday the Son of God, Jesus himself, would be born among them. They would not understand him. They would be blinded to him. They'll scourge him and crucify him. All of this is in verse 9. And then because of that, they would be smitten and afflicted. And they will be, verse 11, driven to and fro. They'll be scattered, smitten, and hated until they come to the knowledge of their Redeemer. And then they shall be gathered again to the lands of their inheritance. Now, verse 12, he shifts to Gentiles, the righteous Gentiles, the Gentiles who repent and fight not against Zion, who do not unite themselves to the great and abominable church, they shall be saved, and the Lord will fulfill his covenants with them. So Jacob saw and Nephi saw that in the latter days there would be this wonderfully righteous branch that would fight the dragon and that they would not unite to the abominable church, and that the Lord would be with them. Now, verse 13, we begin to see the struggle between the righteous Gentiles and the wicked Gentiles. Verse 13, wherefore, they that fight against Zion and the covenant people of the Lord shall lick up the dust of their, meaning the righteous Gentiles' feet, and the people of the Lord shall not be ashamed, for the people of the Lord are they who wait for him. And then in verse 14, again, there's going to be another gathering. So we gathered one time, and now in verse 14, the Messiah will set himself the second time to recover them. This is our day. This is the preparation for the second coming. Who would you say them are there in verse 14, Bryce? What would you say? Uh, Meaning recover them? Yeah. This is the house of Israel that he's recovering in the latter days. So, yes, he's been talking about specific Israelites, the Jews, but now it's the whole house of Israel that the Messiah is going to recover. After the apostasy, the Messiah is going to recover the whole house of Israel in the latter days, and he will manifest himself unto them in great power and great glory and to the destruction of their enemies. And then, end of verse 14, I just think Nephi and Jacob looking through their Syriac eyes and seeing the latter days and seeing this righteous branch of Gentiles who were fighting against such a formidable foe and getting beaten up so many times. As we know, the church has been beaten up from the beginning. Nephi and Jacob must have said, I want to send you a message of hope. So the last part of verse 14, he just says, look, Jesus is going to be with you. And then verse 14, none will he destroy that believe in him. I'll let him interpret what that means. I don't know that that means every righteous person will be spared every possible pain. We know that's not the case. But the message of hope is all of you in the latter days who are struggling against this fierce power trying to destroy you, 
God will not destroy anyone that believe in him. In fact, verse 15, the people that believe not in him, they'll be the ones that will be destroyed. They'll be destroyed by fire and tempest and earthquakes and flood and famine. And the reason for that is they fight against Zion, but they will know that the Lord God is the Holy One of Israel. Wouldn't you say, Bryce, this is kind of set in the context of war? This in is the a, con- It's a very violent. It's a very violent. Yeah. And it's a message to both sides, right? He's trying to say, those of you who are fighting against Zion, you know what? You're going to lick their dust. You will lick their dust. And those of you who are being fought against, those of you who are trying your best to live the gospel and trying to be faithful, and the world has just seemed so powerful, and how do I save my children in, in such a wicked society? He's just trying to say, you know what, hold on, everything's going to be okay. The Lord will be with you. You know, modern readers can kind of get caught up in seeing some of this stuff negatively, especially like verse 18 where it says, I will feed them that oppress thee with their own flesh, and they shall be drunken with their own blood as with sweet wine. In the ancient Near East, that was kind of how they portrayed God. They portrayed him as a mighty warrior. And so scripture comes in its own cultural packaging. Yeah, when the Lord kind of repackages that in our day, he says it a little bit softer. It's the same message, but in the dedication of the Kirtland Temple, he said, We ask thee, Holy Father, to establish the people that shall worship and honorably hold a name and standing in this thy house to all generations for eternity, that no weapon formed against them shall prosper that he who diggeth a pit for them shall fall into the same himself, that no combination of wickedness shall have power to rise up and prevail over thy people upon whom thy name shall be put in this house. So he softens it a little bit in our day, but it's that same idea is that wicked will destroy wicked and they'll turn on each other while the Lord's going to be with us and save us. So this is happening. We have scripture coming in its own cultural packaging. One of the interesting things in this chapter is it's it's just a little phrase, and it's right here at the beginning of chapter 6, where Jacob says, you know, I have anxiety for you. And then at the end of verse 3, look what he says. He says, I have spoken in you concerning the things which are written from the creation of the world. And we're going to see this a few times in the Book of Mormon. We're going to see it here in 6 through 10. We're going to see it in King Benjamin's speech. What we think's happening here is this is a temple setting in First Israelite Temple. We're talking about the creation. And that was always used in the temple. And so Jacob is trying to establish who's in charge, who the king is, and the importance of who God is. And so he does use this imagery about um, God. And this, like I said, it's violent imagery. There's a verse in Third Nephi that I just think a lot about. When, G- when Jesus quotes Isaiah in chapter 22, and then in chapter 23, he kind of says, you should all study Isaiah because the things that Nephi wrote have been and shall be meaning the Lord works through patterns. There's nothing happening in the latter days that hasn't in some way occurred in previous days. So if you want to know what shall be, look at what has been. So Mike, tell us about some of the times that this has happened as a pattern of what will happen. Yeah, that's good. So probably the most, one of the most warlike passages in uh, the whole Bible is some of the stuff in the early stages of writing. But if you look in Exodus 15, The entire 15th chapter is called the Song of the Sea. And it just talks about how God, in verse 8, it says, With the blast of thy nostrils, the waters were gathered together, and the flood stood upwards in a heap. Uh, Verse 3 of Exodus 15, the Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. And look what he does in verse 4. He drowns the Pharaoh's chariots 
in the sea. So Nephi and Jacob are recasting this image of God's going to fight for us. And I think sometimes modern readers struggle with the Book of Mormon being such a violent text. I mean, we're not there yet, but in the Alma chapters of the war chapters, there's such violence, but it's always paired with we're living in this chaos, but God will be with us. A couple more passages that are shall we say, a little bit uh, violent as far as referring to God, would be the 32nd chapter of Deuteronomy. And this is what it says in verse 41. It says, I wet my glittering sword, and mine hand take hold on judgment. I will render vengeance to mine enemies and will reward them that hate me. I will make mine arrows drunk with blood, and my sword shall devour flesh. And with the blood of the slain of the captives from the beginning of revenges upon the enemy, rejoice, O you nations, with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants and will render vengeance to his adversaries. And so I love how Bryce shared that verse. And was that from the dedication of the Kirtland Temple? That was from the prayer. We kind of soften this today. But in the early temple, the imagery was basically, you've got to choose sides. You've got to decide And I think sometimes today, Bryce, we live in a world where people are just waiting for enough evidence and then they'll decide to follow Jesus. And I just want to add my two cents into this. There will never be enough evidence to convince any of us that God's in charge. In other words, these evidences are great, but at the end of the day, we have to have a a spiritual conversion to Christ and we have to proceed forward even without seeing everything. We live in a world where we're constantly getting battered by people saying, well, what evidence do you have? And as, as awesome as that is, we have to make a decision. And so I like this. If there's ever a time you have to make a decision, it's war. Like the time for decision has passed. We're at war. And I think that's where we are today. So it's very fascinating in this sixth chapter. The entire chapter is built in the context of the early temple. And Isaiah's words to the house of Israel in 2 Nephi 6.6 6, The idea of the kings and queens are going to be nursing fathers and mothers. Like, what does that even mean? What does it mean that these scattered remnants are going to be nursed back to health? I think there's so many ways to look at this. My favorite way, and I don't believe there's one way to read Isaiah. There's so many ways. But one of my favorite ways is the idea of a mother holding her child. And to me, I pair that image with the atonement. So big picture, I think it's all about Jesus. I think that's a beautiful interpretation that the king is going to nurse us back to health. We're going to overcome sin and death. Are there other layers to this? Absolutely. We could probably do a whole podcast on that one verse. I think one of the other layers that Jacob seems to be hinting at here, and again, this is just my own opinion. I'll take full responsibility for it. I'm not necessarily saying this is the way things are, but I think certain world leaders, uh, kings and presidents and emperors of countries are going to someday realize, I cannot take care of my people like the gospel of Jesus Christ can. And they will embrace, they will reach out to the church and say, can you please help me meet the needs of my people? Your church does something. Your church has an ability to get people themselves out of the darkness that they find themselves in. So I think there will be a welcome, come into my country, help me. And we saw that with President Nelson's trip down to South America. So many countries were reaching out saying, can you help me feed the poor of my country? Can you help me take care? And in other words, our recognition that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints can do what kings and queens and emperors can't do. So 
just kind of a hang on, guys. I know you're dealing with some scary things and the world is out to destroy you, but you have something that someday even kings and queens will recognize they don't have and that they need. Yeah, super, super layered. Lots of ways to read it. I love verse 11, which is fall and atonement, where it says, um, after they're driven to and fro, for thus saith the angel, they shall be afflicted in the flesh. They shall not suffer to be perished because of the prayers of the faithful. They'll be scattered, smitten, and hated. Nevertheless, the Lord will be merciful to them. And when they shall come to the knowledge of their Redeemer, they shall be gathered together again to the lands of their inheritance. So big picture. I mean, if you had to teach all the Isaiah chapters in like 30 seconds, what would I say? If I had 30 seconds and that's it, I would say there's going to be some scattering. There's going to be the gathering when we come to Christ, when we come to know who he is, and the gathering will, will be both physical and spiritual. That's probably Isaiah in a nutshell in 30 seconds, but man, there's so much more. But that's essentially what Jacob's saying. And Jacob is standing on the pinnacle of his scattering. We've been scattered and we've been separated from our brethren. And I love where he says, you know, we're not going to be ashamed. Those that wait on the Holy One of Israel will not be ashamed. And I love that verse Bryce shared about everything Isaiah says has been and shall be if I was a teacher in gospel doctrine, I'd probably read it every time we did anything from Isaiah. 3 Nephi 23.2, I would mark that and I would read that anytime I taught Isaiah because I don't think there's one way to read it. In other words, it has been and it shall be. And I'm going to throw this out there and I'm with Bryce on this. I think it's happening. It's happening now. Yeah. Yeah, so that's a little bit on um, 2 Nephi 6. Yep, which now transitions into 7 and 8 because Jacob says, look, this message I've just begun is really well taught by Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 50 and 51, but that becomes 2 Nephi 6 and 7. So now Jacob just quotes a whole bunch of Isaiah. So let's jump into the imagery of Isaiah and see, okay, the setting here is that we've got a righteous group of Gentiles, a wicked group of Gentiles, and they're just kind of clashing. It's chaos, and the poor righteous group of Gentiles need to be reminded of some wonderful messages. And so now we get to Isaiah chapter 50. Okay, so with that, there basically are what, what we consider servant songs. There's four of them in Isaiah, and um, three of the servant songs are quoted from the brass plates in the Book of Mormon. So this servant song is Isaiah 54 through 11. And in this servant song, and the question is, well, who's the servant? Well, in my opinion, it's Christ. Christ is a really good uh, way to read this. Uh, verse 2, it says, Wherefore, when I came, there was no man. When I called, there was none to answer, O house of Israel. Is my hand shortened at all that I cannot redeem, or have I no power to deliver? Behold, at my rebuke, I dry up the sea. I make their rivers a wilderness and their fish to stink because the waters are dried up and they die because of thirst. In my opinion, verse two is referring to God's power over the chaos. This is the song of the sea where he makes the sea a heap. This is all the text in the Psalms where God has power over the sea. What we're reading here is this idea that God has the power over chaos. This is like all over the place in the Psalms. And for me, Outside of Christ and his gospel, there's nothing but chaos. And you're going to pay attention. It shouldn't surprise you in the New Testament to watch Jesus calming the sea. 
because he physically is going to do what he's symbolically saying in all of these psalms and stories, that Jesus is going to calm the sea. And I love the version in Mark 4 where he stands up, he's asleep in the boat, he stands up, he rebukes the wind, he calms the sea, and then he leaves his disciples absolutely speechless saying, what manner of man is this? that even the winds and the waves obey him. And the idea is in the chaos of your life, all of those winds and waves that beat against you obey him. And Jesus will conquer the chaos. But back to 2 Nephi. Yeah, so look at verse 4. I think verse 4 through 11 should be read in class. If I was teaching a class, I would just read it and talk about it. It could be the whole class just talking about what it means. But I'm just going to read a little bit. But before I do, uh, 4 through 11 is really the prophet speaking of his work for God, his acceptance of the attendant suffering, and his trust in God's help. His speech ends in a challenge to his enemies and a declaration of their weakness. Now, that's one reading. I think another reading is that it's Isaiah speaking of Christ's work for God. In other words, this is multivalent, and that's what's so beautiful about it. So look in verse 4. The Lord hath given me the tongue of the learned, that I should know how to speak a word in season unto thee, O house of Israel. When you were weary, uh, he waketh morning by morning, he waketh mine ear to hear as the learned. One way to read this, the word for learned could be pupil, in other words, student. So this could be Isaiah speaking of himself, but it also could be learned. So I like this as Jesus. It could be read both ways. Go to verse five. The Lord God hath opened my ear and I was not rebellious, neither turned away my back. I gave my back to the smiter and my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. Beard pulling and spitting. God is speaking to the outcast of Israel. I have not forgotten you. Why? Because I gave my back to the smiter for you. For me, I just read this and see, I see Jesus everywhere. Verse 7, Therefore have I set my face like a flint. I know that I shall not be ashamed. The Lord is near, and he justifieth me. Who will contend with me? Let us stand together. Who is mine adversary? Let him come near me, and I will smite him with the strength of my mouth. This is beautiful. The end of the chapter is a challenge to the haters. And the Lord, Isaiah, is essentially saying, yeah, you're going to walk in the sparks of your own fire. You have two choices. You can come with me or you can walk on your own. And so this is a beautiful challenge to the enemies. Now, is Jacob speaking to enemies? Like, what's going on here? Well, clearly, we just had the great divorce. There may be people in his audience that are like, did I make the right choice? In a modern context, how about you, the listener? Have there been times when you read something on an internet stream and it challenged your faith, or one of your coworkers said, I can't believe you believe this? In other words, I think chapter seven has perpetual relevance in our life. We're always living in this space of, we have to have faith, don't we, Bryce? Yeah. I love how much this concept gave comfort to Joseph Smith on his way to Carthage jail. He must clearly have been familiar with Isaiah's writings and how Jesus gave his face to the smiter. But he was calm. And because of that, Joseph Smith says on his way to Carthage, I am going like a lamb to the slaughter, but I am calm as a summer's morning. And that's because Jesus already went through this. 
and he's going to be with me and he's going to guide me. And I think that's what this is all about. As all of us face the challenges of our life, as we turn our face to the smiter in our life, know that the Savior is going to be with you. His hand is not slackened to help. He hasn't forgotten us. He's very familiar with everything that we've been through because he was the one that put his face to the smiter. He was the one that was spit upon. So when those things happen to us, he will be with us. And I just love that Joseph Smith took such great comfort as he went to his slaughter in how Jesus went and faced his slaughter. So clearly these verses are meant to apply to all of us in whatever setting we're at and to find comfort in the Savior not forgetting us. It's the height of irony. If you think about it, I don't see a lot of Christian denominations being called out as not Christian, except for us. <laughs> it's just ironic that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is being considered unchristian. And then I find the height of irony where Jesus, all through the New Testament, is doing things, and he'll perform a great miracle that clearly is supernatural, and his haters will say, well, you have the power of the devil. Yep. And so, and you can see this with Nephi, all through First Nephi, where he's doing the work of God, and his brother's like, oh, you just want to be in charge. So in the eighth chapter... This is more Isaiah. So this is Isaiah 51 and then 52, 1 and 2. And there's basically what we call three oracle units in here. There's three of them. There's verses 1 through 3, 4 through 6, and 7 through 8. And the first oracle, verses 1 through 3, is where God basically says, don't worry, Zion, you will be whole again. Their concern is, are we ever going to be put back together? And it's riddled with the festival idea of fertility. But in the next oracle, in verses four through six, God is speaking. And in these verses where he says, hearken my people, my righteousness is near in verse five, lift up your eyes, O heavens. Essentially what he's saying is my rule is about to take place. And then the third oracle is verses seven through eight, where he says, don't be afraid of what the haters are going to say. I know these things are going to be rough, but don't worry. And then if you look in verse 9, I'm going to parallel verse 9 with verse 17. And remember, in the ancient temple perspective, the people were there watching the king get enthroned. And when they made covenants, they were asked to stand and arise. So look in verse 9, where it says, Awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord, awake as in the ancient days. Art thou not he that hath cut Rahab and wounded the dragon? That's all throughout the Psalms, especially 74. And then verse 17 of 2 Nephi 8, Awake, awake, stand up, O Jerusalem, which has drunk at the hand of the Lord the cup of his fury. So essentially they're asked to come up, to stand up, and to make covenants to be and to swear allegiance to God. The end of the chapter I call the great exchange. And we only get a piece of it here. The other piece for proper context is the 47th chapter of Isaiah. So here's in essence what's happening. In the end of this chapter, and this is really Isaiah uh, 51, but then it also picks up chapter 52, 1 and 2. That is where the Israelites are asked to come and take the throne. And there's an exchange because somebody's already on the throne. So this is what it says, Isaiah 47, 1, come down, sit in the dust, O virgin daughter of Babylon, sit on the ground. There is no throne. It's this total taunt. O daughter of the Chaldeans, for thou shalt no more be called tender and delicate. Take the millstone, grind the meal, uncover the lock, make bare the leg, uncover the thigh, pass over the rivers. You're going to put on the clothes of a slave. Thy nakedness shall be uncovered. Thy shame shall be seen. I will take vengeance and I will not meet thee as a man. Verse five, sit thou silent. I mean, you could read the rest of this. There's so much good stuff in here. But in verse seven, Babylon says, 
I shall be a lady forever. And the Lord here says in verse 8, no, you're not going to do, it's not going to happen. You're going to sit as a widow, end of verse 8. Verse 9, these two things, and we don't know what that word is. It's italicized, but whatever that phrase means, these two things shall come to thee in a moment in one day, the loss of children and widowhood. So Babylon's kicked off the throne. Well, who sits on the throne? And the answer is Israel. So that's Isaiah 51. This is the exchange. And so here it is. Uh, verse 1 of chapter 52 of Isaiah, or if you're reading in the Book of Mormon, verse 24. Awake, awake, put on thy strength, O Zion, put on thy beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For henceforth there shall no more come unto thee the uncircumcised and the unclean. Shake thyself from the dust, arise, sit down, O Jerusalem, loose thyself from the bands of thy neck, O captive daughter of Zion. And so Israel is going to take the throne. Now, this has so many applications. If you were in the time period of the exile, this gives comfort to the exiles whose temple was destroyed. If you lived in the time of Isaiah, this gives comfort to them as their land was ravaged by Assyria. If you lived in Europe in the 1940s, and these horrible potentates just ravaged your land wherever you live. This gives comfort to them. There's so many ways we can read this. And if you're a Latter-day Saint who's come to earth right at the end of the apostasy as Satan has ruled on this planet for over a thousand years and gained complete control of almost every corner of this planet, and you've been sent here to restore light and truth and get as many people to the knowledge of God in preparation for his coming, you can take all of this to say it's going to be okay. Because no matter how big the chaos, no matter how incredibly overwhelming the fight might be, there is a power on your side that you cannot even comprehend sometimes, and he will be with you, and he will help conquer the chaos, which I think is just a beautiful transition into chapter 9, because these Isaiah chapters just paint this image of no matter how bleak, no matter how overwhelming the chaos may seem, our master has conquered the chaos. And he will defeat the monster, and he's on your side. And I just love these verses because now we transition into a chapter which is just absolutely beautiful in terms of he conquered the monster. So if you'll go through chapter 9 and find all of the awfuls, all of the awfuls that would be our fate if we didn't have a Messiah, if there weren't an infinite atonement, verse 10 we are in the grasp of this awful monster. Verse 19, he delivereth his saints from that awful monster, death, hell, and the devil. Verse 26, he delivered from that awful monster, death and hell, and the devil. And then we get a whole lot of other states. Now, if you don't choose Jesus, look at all the awful states. Verse 27, but woe unto him that has the law given, that has the commandments, and transgresseth them. Awful is his state. Verse 39, my beloved brethren, remember the awfulness in transgressing against the Holy One, and also the awfulness of yielding to the enticings of that cunning one. Don't fall to the awfulness. In verse 46, judgment day and resurrection day will be glorious or awful. Look at all the awfuls in verse 46. You will shrink with an awful fear. You will remember your awful guilt in perfectness if you don't repent. At the end of verse 46, 
there's an awful misery. And verse 47 is probably my favorite, is Jesus saves us from the awful reality. Jesus is there to conquer the chaos. He will save you from the awful fear, the awful guilt, the awful misery, the awful reality. And that's what the atonement does. So yes, chapter 9 really focuses on death and hell, which is the greatest of all the chaoses. But the message here is this same man can help you conquer whatever chaos in your life you're fighting against, whether that's social or maybe just your own personal or mental or financial or health-wise, whatever chaos seems to be overwhelming you, if you will let Jesus into your life and turn to him and embrace him, he will conquer the awful monsters. That's beautiful. I just want to add my witness to that. For me in my life, I remember the first time I read the Book of Mormon as a teenager, I was just in this chaos. I had a really interesting background, and I remember reading it, Bryce, and I remember being filled with light, and I really think because of the darkness I was in, the light was so distinct. Mm. I went on my mission to Chicago, and I taught some people that you know, lived in, I were served in some interesting areas. And I remember some of the neatest spiritual experiences were with people where you could tell their life was just off the path. And it was beautiful to watch them say things like, other day, I feel this feeling and they would describe it. And I remember feeling God's love for people that were really struggling with all kinds of issues and difficulties. And so I just want to testify of that, that there is a chaos, there is an awful reality, and there is a Messiah. In the ancient Near East, the chaos was personified uh, by a monster, death and hell. And there's different ways that you can see this. But in Egypt, it was this critter named Amit. And he was like this critter that was like a crocodile. And he was like a lion and a hippopotamus. And in the 125th uh, chapter of the Book of the Dead or the Going Forth by Day, the individual would be brought to this uh, God Thoth, and he would weigh your heart. And if your heart was heavy, then you didn't get in and, and Amit got to eat you. And I'm sorry, I have to do this, but you know, the hard hearted stuff with Pharaoh in the book of Exodus, there's basically two different ways they describe his heart. And in one of the descriptions, the author says that the Pharaoh's heart was made heavy and it's translated as hard. But I think what the author of Exodus is doing is basically saying, yeah, Pharaoh, your heart's too heavy. You're going to be eaten by Amit because you're a bad seed. I just think that's so cool. And so it's personified in the ancient Near East. We don't do this. We don't personify death, but they did. And Jacob's coming out of this tradition. Also in what's called the Canaanite Baal cycle, death and hell are fought by Baal. Mot is death and yam is sea death and hell are fought and, and Baal wins. And so this, the way they personify this with chaos and conquering it and the battle is all throughout and replete in ancient Near Eastern literature. And, you know, we don't have to, to read that to know that we're fighting this awful monster. And if you've ever lost a loved one, you know how difficult that is. And so I think Jacob here is saying in his way, that Jesus conquers this. But then I love, I, if, if I only had two verses to read, if someone came to me and said, Mike, you have two verses and you got to teach 2 Nephi 9. I don't know what yours are, Bryce, but I'm going to read. I'm going to read verse 9 and 10. And what he's saying is, this is what would have happened had Jesus not come. And this is what he says. Our spirits must have become likened to him and we become devils. Our spirits would be like the devil. 
angels to a devil, to be shut out from the presence of our God and to remain with the father of lies and misery like unto himself. Yea, to that being who beguiled our first parents, who transformeth himself nigh into an angel of light and stirreth up the children of men into secret combinations of murder and all manner of secret works of darkness. Oh, how great the goodness of our God who prepareth a way for our escape from the grasp of this awful monster, yea, that monster death and hell, which I call the death of the body and also the death of the spirit. And so to me, Bryce, I think what Jacob is saying is if there's no atonement, we are all toast. Like we are not going anywhere good. But because there is atonement, there is no monster that we can't conquer. Mike, let me be very, very personal for a moment. Um, I don't want to make anyone uncomfortable, but I just really want to help people understand. Mike said, here are the two verses that I think mean the most to him. Let me tell you what those verses do to me. And let me tell you a very, very personal story. I'm actually going to tell three stories. And let me be clear. The first two stories are 100% true. The third story is not true yet. It's a vision I have of in my head of a future moment. So please, if you misunderstand that, you're going to totally misunderstand. You'll freak out a little bit. And mom, if you're listening to this podcast, you need to turn the podcast off. This is the story I promised I wouldn't ever tell in your presence again. She really gets heartbroken when I tell this story. But let me see if I can portray what I believe Jacob is doing in this chapter. Story number one, um, Jesus has been crucified and it tormented the people who loved him that he was rushed into the grave. And so as second the Sabbath is over, they're going to be there to anoint his body and prepare it for burial. And so Sunday morning, which is the end of the Sabbath at dawn, they're there and Mary finds an empty tomb and she is just heartbroken. She knows that the people that hated him, probably came and took his body to mutilate it and to get some revenge. And so she's just heartbroken because she loves this man so much. She runs back and gets Peter and John and they come and then they leave her there weeping. And there's this beautiful, beautiful scene where Mary is weeping and a man approaches from behind and says, woman, why weepest thou? Whom seekest thou? And she supposes it's the gardener, and she turns around and says, Sir, if you've borne him hence, will you tell me where you laid him? I will bring him back. I love this man, and he deserves a proper burial. Can you please tell me where he's been taken, and I will take care of it? And then the man standing behind her says one word that changes all of eternity. One simple word. Mary. And thrilled beyond anything she could imagine, she knows that voice now. She knows who it is. And she turns from an empty grave to a living Messiah who conquered the monster. And there he was, not dead, not on a cross, not in pain. There he was. Story number two. 1985, I was a junior in high school. I was, I made the basketball team, so we stayed after school for basketball practice. Um, after practice was over, my neighbor burst into the locker room, pale as a ghost, and asked to speak to the coach. And the coach came back pale as a ghost, and all of us knew that something was wrong. And we all kept saying, please don't let it be me. Please don't let it be me. The coach looked at me and said, Bryce, you need to go talk to him. And my heart just sank. 
My neighbor said you need to get home as soon as possible. Something's happened at your house. Go. So I didn't even change. I'm in my practice jersey, my practice uniform, and I grabbed my keys and I drove home. And as soon as I pulled into my driveway, there was a policeman and an ambulance, and I knew something serious had happened in my home. I walked in, and the neighbors were there, and they started to say, Bryce is here, Bryce is here, Bryce is here. And out came my father and took me outside to let me know that my 12-year-old brother had been killed in an accident in our home. He had stayed home to watch our two, you know, my two littlest youngest brother and a sister while my mom and my older sister went out to buy um, Thanksgiving supplies. The next day was Thanksgiving. And so he had been killed in an accident. And my younger sister was the first one home from high school. And she um, tried to give him CPR and it didn't work. And she called my dad and he came home and tried to give him CPR and that didn't work. And I was the third one home, which means I was there when my mother came home. I was there when my mom found out that her son was dead. And I'll never forget that as long as I live. I'll never forget the the anguish I saw in her. She had to be taken out of the house when they brought his body upstairs. A couple days later, we went to the funeral home, and my mom just held his hand and wept the biggest tears I've ever seen. Over the years, she's visited the grave many times and tried to stay in contact with him. She gave something to all of his friends when they went on their mission, hoping that, you know, maybe some part of Matthew Dunford would serve a mission, knowing that her son was not going to come home from a mission here on earth. I've watched the pain that that has caused my mother over these years. Now, story number three, a future story. My brother's buried in the Larkin Cemetery here in Salt Lake City. It's a beautiful cemetery. One day, my mom drives into the cemetery to just visit her son's graveside, and she begins to see that there's been some vandalism. And as she gets close, her heart just absolutely sinks because it's the worst kind of vandalism. Someone's been digging up caskets, and some of them have been broken open. And I don't know what kind of person would do that, and my mom just panics. She drives to where my brother's buried. Now he's, the road stops and then she, you have to kind of climb a hill. So she gets out of the car and she gets to the top of the hill and she, some, she sees something that she never anticipated ever seeing again. And that's the blue casket that we buried my brother in. There it is, dug up and opened. And she falls to the ground, just weeping. Who would do such a thing? This is her boy. She finally composes herself and goes over and peeks in, and sure enough, he's gone. Someone's taken her son's body. And all the pain of all the years comes screaming back. And suddenly she hears someone approach her from behind. And the man says, Woman, why weepest thou? Whom seekest thou? And my mom says, do you know who took my son's body? Do you know where they took him? This is my little boy. And I just need him back. 
And then the man says one word, one simple word that changes eternity. Mom. And she turns. And there he is, not dead, alive, living, happy. That is what Jesus does in our lives. That is what he will do someday. That's what he does to all of the chaos that we face every day of our life. If we let Jesus in, there will come a moment where he conquers the awful monster, the monster you and I can't conquer. And we will turn and we will see. I bear my solemn witness of that man, of the man who conquered the awful monster. A monster I can't conquer, but he can. And when all is said and done, that's what the gospel boils down to. I know it's going on missions and it's paying your tithing and it's taking institute classes, but what it boils down to is a loving God loves us enough to conquer the monster. And if we turn to him and let him in, that infinite atonement will deliver us and conquer the monster. That's beautiful. God's going to put everything back in its place. Bryce, your brother is alive. Everything you've talked about and everything in these four chapters can really be summed up by the very last two verses of this, the 10th chapter of 2 Nephi. And it's almost like Jacob is concluding everything where he says in verse 24 of chapter 10, Wherefore, my beloved brethren, reconcile yourselves to the will of God and not to the will of the devil in the flesh. And remember, after you're reconciled unto God, that it is only in and through the grace of God that you're saved. Wherefore, may God raise you from death by the power of the resurrection and also from everlasting death by the power of the atonement, that ye may be received into the eternal kingdom of God, that ye may praise him through grace divine. Amen. That really is, I mean, those two verses sum up everything you're talking about here. This is all in a temple setting. To be reconciled is to sit again with. You're sitting again with God. Brothers and sisters, we came from his presence. We are going to be reconciled. And I can almost see Jacob with all of his anxiety just begging us to live a life that we can look back on and say, you know what? I love Jesus. I loved my mom and dad, and I loved God's children. Yeah, medicine can find a way to delay the monster. We can push it back maybe for a few years, but no one conquers the monster. He always wins in our lives. And then comes Jesus and conquers the monster. That awful reality you you spoke of, I think, Bryce, because at least in the first world, as some of these Western countries, we're insulated from the awful realities. You talked about antibiotics, but even things like right now where we live in Salt Lake City, it's freezing cold outside. But here you and I are sitting in a nice warm room. We have air-conditioned cars or cars that heat us. We're constantly insulated from, as you stated, the awful realities, but Jacob wasn't. I mean, every day was a challenge. Every day they had to fight through it. I think that's one of the hard things of living in this day is 
we have it easy on so many things. And so because of that, I think we're less dependent on God because we've kind of, we say in our minds, well, look what I've built, look what I've done. And that's Nephite blindness. That's exactly what the Nephites did every time they go astray. It's look how great we are. Look how strong we are. Look how our our cities are great. We don't need God's help. But maybe we need to remember that the awful monster brings an awful reality. And the only way to overcome that awful reality is with the infinite atonement and, you know, just turning our lives to the Savior. Yeah. After that story, I don't even know what to say. I mean, I, wow. I mean, there's the woes we can talk about. We can talk about the straight, narrow path. All of Second Nephi, the end is all temple once again. The, the 10 woes are the cursings associated with the 10 commandments. There's a great article out there we'll post in the show notes where you can see the, the woes that Nephi gives, all 10 of them are associated with the law. And essentially what he's saying is, man, there's a consequence here if you break this. In 2 Nephi 9.41, he talks about coming to God. Look what he says. He says, Oh, then, my beloved brethren, come to the Lord, the Holy One, and remember that his paths are righteous. Behold, the way for man is narrow, but it lieth in a straight course before him, and the keeper of the gate is the Holy One of Israel. And by the way, there's none other way. And, and what's called the Tractate Yoma, which is a, a series of articles talking about how to approach the Holy of Holies during the, uh, the Atonement Festival, during the Fall Festival. And this is foreign to a lot of Latter-day Saints. We don't think of it this way. But the, the belief was is that there were two veils separating the Holy of Holies from the Holy Place, and that the two veils made like a little corridor. And the high priest would walk in this one cubit-wide corridor, and he would go between the veils in a straight and narrow path to God's presence. Now, is Jacob referring to this? I certainly don't know. But I think that that is a very interesting parallel, this idea of we're coming to God's presence, we're being reconciled to God, and we're being invited to come back to him. And I love what it says in verse 42, where it says, whoever knocks to him will he open and the wise and the learned and they that are rich who are puffed up. And you can read the rest of the verse. There's this woe in there where he's like, not, not going to happen. And so we've got to knock and we've got to come to God, but we have to be humble. My favorite wall was verse 28 and 29 because so many people are susceptible to this. Oh, that cunning plan of the evil one. Oh, the vainness and the frailties and the foolishness of men. When they are learned, they think they are wise and they hearken not unto the counsel of God for they set it aside, supposing they know of themselves. Wherefore, their wisdom is foolishness and it profiteth them not and they shall perish. Don't do that. Don't get so puffed up in your own wisdom that you don't think you need God. To be learned is good if you hearken unto the counsels of God. So some wonderful woes that will keep us away from the spiritual awful monster that brings awful guilt and awful misery and an awful reality. This is a big chapter. I'm looking at it here and I'm like, 54 verses. Yeah. It's mammoth. And it's all over. It's just wonderful. It's it's a powerful chapter. I love verse 50, the conclusion. Come, my brethren, everyone that thirsteth, come to the waters. And he, if you don't have any money, come by and eat. Come by wine and milk without money and without price. 
Do not spend money for that which is of no worth, nor your labor for that which cannot satisfy. Hearken diligently unto me, and remember the words which I have spoken. Come unto the Holy One of Israel, and feast upon that which perisheth not, neither can be corrupted, and let your souls delight in fatness. Just a beautiful invitation. Come eat his food, and you will be filled, and it will never die. And you'll, that hunger inside of us for joy will be satisfied. I like that. That's the tree. The water and the food, it's feeding us. We're, we're in God's presence. That's the tree that we've talked about in First Nephi 8. If you're a visual learner, and if you have a family, maybe you have little children that are visual learners, there's a really good graphic out there called The Ways of Life and Death, Jacob's Explanation in Second Nephi 9. And we'll put this in the show notes. And it just is a great illustration that Jacob is essentially saying there's two ways you can go. You can go towards the Lord, or you can go towards hell or the chaos. You can go towards spiritual life or you can go towards spiritual death. And that is really what he's saying. And it really is that simple. Come to the tree. Don't let go of the rod. Yeah. So second Nephi 10, Jacob's going to speak about this righteous branch of which he has spoken. He says that in verse one. And he says in verse two, the promises which we've obtained are promises to us according to the flesh. Wherefore, as it has been shown unto me that many of our children will perish in the flesh because of unbelief, but nevertheless, God will be merciful unto many and our children shall be restored and they shall come to that which shall give them the true knowledge of their redeemer. And then he talks a little bit about uh, the, the people that crucified Jesus. And he basically says they're the only people that could have done it. And so I almost see in this, Bryce, um, Jacob basically saying that this is set up, that Jesus had to come at a certain time so that these things would happen. So we can almost see a little bit, not totally, but a little bit Calvinistic sovereignty of God happening here, right? Where God's setting the table, they certainly have their agency, but he sends Jesus to a group of people in a time period when he would be crucified. However you want to read that, I will say this, I have seen God's power in my life. I still retain my agency, but I have faith in knowing that he is in charge. And I love chapter 10 because in many senses, we are that branch. We are that restored branch in the latter days. We are the one. And all of these things are messages us to us to say, hang in there. Everything's going to be okay. We are the ones that are gathering Israel and the Lord's going to help us. And everything that we face, he's already faced. He's already been through it. Therefore, he will make sure that we will will succeed. And so you'll just find in chapter 10 that whole theme of gather, gather Israel. And anyone who fights against us is going to be stopped. And we will succeed. The truth will go forward. Jesus will come and there will be a righteous branch on this earth. It will succeed. This is the only dispensation in the history of this planet that will not end in apostasy. We are the hope of every prophet whose dispensation failed. Every one of them looked to the future to see, is it ever going to succeed? Will his promises be fulfilled? When will Israel finally triumph? And we are that branch. And we are gathering Israel, and he is going to come, and it's going to work. And be with him. He's not going to fail. And I just love that. It's going to work out. The promises are going to be kept. The covenants will be fulfilled. I'm going to geek out just briefly about the name of, of Jesus. So... In First and Second Nephi, they're going to call him the Holy One of Israel. 
Isaiah's influence cannot be mistaken here. 29 times, according to John Oswald, 29 times Isaiah is going to call him the Holy One of Israel. And right here in verse three, and I find this interesting, like I don't, once again, we're back to this 23-year-old writing this. I don't think so. Look at verse three. As I said unto you, it must needs be expedient that Christ, and then Jacob pauses and says, for in the last night, an angel spake unto me and said, that's going to be his name. So this is the first time the phrase Christ, now that just means anointed one. So we're talking about kingship, but here he's using that phrase and whatever it was on the brass plates, whatever that word was, Joseph Smith put Christ there. And there is no Christ, that word, prior to this. And this is Jacob saying, hey, it was revealed to me that this is what we're going to call him. We don't get the name Jesus revealed until 2 Nephi 25, 19. And this time it's revealed to Nephi. And once again, we, we get this message given to us that this was something that was revealed to them. So these prophets, even though they're having these amazing visions, they're learning as they're going. And we're back to this Holy One of Israel. 29 times Isaiah uses it, but it's only seven other times in the Bible, in the whole Bible. And so I really think Isaiah is a big deal to Jacob and Nephi, and I think that's why they're quoting him. And I think to me, this is really cool that a prophet can have all this stuff. He can see all this stuff. And yet something so simple as, well, what's the name of this individual? Like that had to be revealed. Anyway, that's kind of fun. And like I said, that's not a 23-year-old writing this. This is ancient stuff. So the name of Jesus in 2519, 2 Nephi, and then right here, Christ. So that's that on um, 2 Nephi 10. I do like verse 7 where it says, but behold, saith the Lord, when the day cometh that they'll believe in me, that I am Christ, that I have covenanted with their fathers, that they shall be restored in their flesh upon the earth unto the lands of their inheritance, I'm going to gather them and for their long dispersion. So this is Jacob talking, but I really think Jacob is channeling Isaiah. Because when you read Isaiah, 2 Nephi 10, 7 and 8 is the message of Isaiah, that God's going to put everything back in its place. Bryce, your brother is alive and he's going to be back. And you've struggled. We all have. We've all lost loved ones. And it's going to be put right. I just have faith in this. I, I have, I feel it. When I, when I spoke at my mom's funeral, I had this distinct feeling that she's not dead and that Jesus is in charge. And that's my testimony that it's going to be put back. And every other monster in your life, not just death, the monster of sin, the monster of trial, the monster of mortalities, challenges. Jesus conquers the monster with all my soul, especially those of you who are dealing with the chaos right now. Take hope. Revelation 21.4, he will wipe away all tears from off our eyes because the monster is gone. Of that, I testify. And with that, we're going to end. We thank you for listening. We will do the Isaiah chapters next time. If what we've talked about has resonated with you, we encourage you to share this with the people that you have influence with and hope that this is of value. If you like this video, be sure to subscribe. And if you haven't already, go check out our YouTube channel called Talking Scripture. On that channel, Bryce and I have been working on some new video content. These new videos are in addition to the regular podcasts that Bryce and I do together and supplements to your Come Follow Me study. And we'll leave a link in the description. Once again, thanks for joining us and make it a great week. Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. 
We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions. 